0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ophira Eisenberg.
1: I romanticized. Like I was like, I bet when you get mugged in New York City, like sparkles also fly in the air.
0: <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say, holy cow, we had really just another phenomenal live stream the other night this past weekend. It was we've had some really, really memorable experiences. We've had some nights to remember in these online live streams that we've done. And so I really hope that you make a point of coming to our next one. It is on October 9th at 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 7 p.m. Pacific. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour as I want to give a little shout out here to our latest Patreon members, Ashley Adkins and Harold Gardner. We always give a little shout out to anyone giving $25 or more per month. And thank you so much because it is really, really, really essential for Risk to continue existing uh, that we get as much help as we possibly can from people who love the show. Uh, It's been a really rough year for for everyone but we've really become quite reliant on our help from our fans to really stay afloat here now uh, so there's lots to find there there is so much bonus content over there at patreon you don't want to miss it it's at patreon.com risk and if you ever want to make a one-time donation to us you can go to paypal.me slash risk show now here's the show Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Cesar Carmargo Mariano behind me now. I knew I was going to trip over that one a little bit. Guys, we're all very emotional and overwhelmed lately, right? And last week, uh, we here at Risk found ourselves all wound up in lots of emotional conversations about one story in particular on last week's episode one story really got risk listeners talking in the various places that people talk online about risk but especially over at the risk podcast fans discussion group on facebook there were a few separate threads about it and i'll tell you sometimes it's kind of a relief when Listeners get really engaged in conversations about a story because there are stretches of time Where people aren't engaging all that much aren't reacting to particular stories all that noticeably And i'll start to get worried and check to see if the download numbers have dipped But it is the nature of this particular show That you as a listener are going to have mixed feelings About stories so I hope that you do feel like the podcast itself is a conversation and that you're a part of it you know the more folks are talking about stories they've heard out there in the world the better overall I think we on the staff are always talking about our own disparate feelings about this or that story all the time we're processing lots of our own conflicting reactions to these complex experiences people are sharing about on the show we are always asking one another for a second ear you know someone will text me and say hey how do you feel about this i personally felt a little bit weird about what happened in the middle or whatever and so we're always eager to see bigger conversations out there in the world about the stories and to jump in and chat with you. So Laura Ford's story from last week's episode, the story was called Heartbreak, about the adoption of two foster kids and how tragic that experience became. And this was a case where I knew that there would be a lot of reactions. But I did didn't foresee that a lot of those reactions in the comment threads would have a tone some of the comments didn't feel so compassionately worded you know and Laura was pretty struck by some of those reactions and myself and Cindy and Brad our story coaches we got on the phone with Laura to check in with her And we talked about how some of the questions listeners were asking were good questions, you know, about getting further context around the story and how some people were actually making inaccurate assumptions about some of what was left out of the story for time and streamlining and so on. So we all thought it would be nice to record a follow-up conversation with Laura. And we did. We recorded a really nice conversation. And now I want to put together a short montage of some of the most important things that Laura said during the course of that conversation and then put that after the story itself on that episode that the story was originally on so the plan now is to re-upload that episode which is fittingly called readjusting so I think that by Tuesday if you re download that episode you'll find that it's now You know, the expanded director's cut version of that episode called Readjusting, where you can hear that follow-up to Laura's story. I'll tell you, though, one of the prompts that we give to people, like all the time in our story studio classes, and especially in our coaching for Risk, is try telling a story with a confession in it. In other words, try telling a story where you own up to having made a big mistake, or having caused someone a lot of pain, or having behaved in a way that you regret. Those are crucial stories. I just told one on the live stream just last night about how I almost accidentally killed myself because of a com- completely stupid, irresponsible mistake when I was 24 years old. Those stories bring tremendous, you know, life lessons sort of inspiration or illumination to listeners or, you know, the sense of, oh my God, other people are human too and they struggle too. We learn a lot from stories about mixed feelings and Messes made, you know, so we want to make sure that storytellers continue to feel Secure that this is a place where Such stories can be shared And of course I understand uh, that sometimes you guys get mad at me for curating the show the way I do Here and there and that's okay. That's an occupational hazard of mine. I respect you know different points of view about choices i make here i try to listen with an open mind and treat everyone's feelings as being valid in some way and i've definitely made (laughs) made mistakes i've made changes to episodes well like the one i'm talking about from last week that is now going to be changed so listen let us all stay in conversations let's have lots of conversations but let's also be mindful of being respectful of one another as respectful as we can you know in those conversations okay on that note (laughs) now that i've called the whole risk family into the living room for this fireside chat it's very apropos that this week's episode is called Make Yourself at Home. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ophira Eisenberg, who is, she was on the first episode of Risk, the first ever one. Oh my gosh, who doesn't love Ofira? Ophira, well, she's the host of Ask Me Another on NPR, for one thing. And for another thing, she's just one of the all-time great storytellers. But before Ophira... We're going to hear from Paul Peglar. Oh my gosh, Paul is such a wonderful guy. He is one of the co-founders of ECT in New York City, E-C-H-T. You can look them up on Instagram at WeAreECT. It's an artistic... What do you call it? Collective. They put together such wonderful events and shows and experiences. We love them and we love Paul. And here is Paul at caveat before everything closed down when Risk was still doing live shows in theaters in New York with a story we call Liquid Love Story.
3: So ever since moving to New York, I have found myself really eager to explore my sexuality. Anyone else? I don't know if that's because in New York, you're able to find an outlet for any curiosity that you could possibly have. I was part of this men's group, and we would meet regularly to just kind of cut through the bullshit, talk about our career aspirations, our personal goals, relationships, and obviously sex. And this one guy would always come in with the greatest stories. He'd be like, I was in Costa Rica, and I made love to two women on a mountain in the rain. Oh, you know that roommate I wasn't supposed to sleep with? Well, yeah, I slept with her, and her partner was there watching, and then my ex came in and joined us. It was beautiful. (laughs) And we're like, who are you? What is this? And he was in the world. He's been to Burning Man, and he's going to play parties, and he's part of the poly scene, and BDSM, and Tantra. And what this guy really was was a representation of all the shit that I had always wanted to do and had never done. I've always had these, like, kind of secret, private curiosities and had never taken any steps towards doing anything about them. So finally, I was now, like, one degree away from things happening. And one day he told us about this event that he was participating in called Liquid Love. I'll just give you a second to make up your own version of what that might be. But essentially what liquid love is, is a bunch of strangers get together and they get naked and pour oil all over their bodies and roll around and have a frictionless experience. (laughs) And here's the thing. So among my group of friends, I'm kind of known as like an adventurer because I'll go and like do things. And whenever I go back to L.A., they're always like, tell us the new story. Like, what have you been up to this time, Paul? One of my friends actually nicknamed me Daredevil because... There was a time where I took a massive amount of mushrooms the same week that I decided to change careers, broke up with my girlfriend, and went off Prozac. (laughs) He called it brave, Um, I call it stupid, but regardless, I had a habit of just going for it. Naturally, I was piqued by this interest in this event, and I think it was compounded by the fact that a year prior, I had ended a relationship, and we did this really cool thing where you break up and then you stay in each other's lives for a year. Um, Do you ever do that? It really helps you heal, it's great. Um, 10 out of 10, recommend. And so I was frankly broken. A lot of things ended around that same time so I had really retreated into myself and really just felt very disconnected and um, was in need of some new intimacy because the intimacy we shared allowed me to Tear down a lot of the walls I had. And then when I lost it, I just built them back up, but twice as high and twice as strong. So I was seeking something, something to get me in my body, something to get me out of my head, something to build back my confidence and help me explore my sexuality again. And I heard this event and I was like, it wasn't so much a conscious decision that I wanted to do it, I just knew that I had to. And so I did. I bought a ticket. It was a Wednesday evening in May. And I walked up to the Brooklyn Brownstone where this was going to happen. And I ring the buzzer and I'm waiting there and another guy comes up and just kind of look at him like, you ever done this before? He's like, nope. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And then we go upstairs and we're let in and it's very friendly. Like, hey, here, put your stuff here. And there was a snack table with tea and water and fruit and stuff. But then... The guy that I came up with hugs one of the facilitators, and I was like, oh, of course. Suddenly, I felt like an outsider, and all of my social anxiety and my insecurities started bubbling up, and I was like, what am I doing? Like, I've made a mistake. Like, Okay, maybe I'm a cool like, daredevil with my friends, but here I'm a small fish in a big pond, and they handed out all these um, icebreaker question prompts so we could talk to people and get to know each other. And a woman came up to me and asked me what my prompt was. And I don't to this day remember what it was. I don't know what I said to her. I just remember feeling like a deer in headlights. And the truth is, I didn't want to connect with anybody. I just wanted to like have the experience. I was putting myself into the fire. I was going to have another story to tell my friends. Let's just get naked and let's do the thing, please. And so finally, uh, we were told to sit in a circle in the room. And the room was a living room, but it had been emptied out. The only thing in there were a bunch of pads on the floor with a tarp covering them, taped to the wall to prevent spillage. And the facilitator starts talking. Here's what you can expect from this experience. He was telling about the history of liquid love. It goes back to the ancient Greece or whatever. And apparently liquid love can be one of two things. It can be a sexual space or it can expressly not be. And ours was the latter. So we talked about consent, and we talked about respect, and he's like, look, bodies are weird, okay? Things might happen, erections are normal, and if you moan or you laugh or whatever feelings come up, that's totally okay, but we're not going to engage in our sexual impulses. So we stand up, and there's about 30 of us in the room, and he says, okay, look around. These are the people you're sharing this experience with. Take off your pants. So we take off our pants. And look, I come from theater, so like the nudity part wasn't weird for me. Like, whatever. But as we hold that space, he says, okay, if you need to drink water, if you need to use the restroom, do that now. Otherwise, the rest of you just find space on the floor, lay down, close your eyes. So once everyone's settled, we do that. And he leads us in a little guided meditation. And as he's doing this, these two consent angels started walking around and... Pouring coconut oil on all of our bodies. Rub it in. Feel that experience. So we're doing that. Because if you want more stimulus, you move to the center of the room. If you want less, you move toward the wall. Otherwise, begin. And it's around this point that I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) Like, okay, I know I wanted to like, Challenge myself and so I bought the ticket and I followed through I showed up and here I am I'm doing it but like what the fuck am I doing I didn't think this far ahead do I just roll around like what do I do now Uh, you know and like I'm okay don't get an erection but like it'd be fine if you did and so I'm like trying to navigate that and I'm like all right well it's not sexual so don't inappropriately grope someone, but, you know, also go with the flow and try to flow with the energy of the room and having this, like, connected, cosmic, frictionless experience. There's people moaning. There's one woman laughing hysterically. And, like, things are just going great for everybody else. But I'm, like, in a room with a bunch of naked, oily strangers, and I'm still stuck in my head. Like, what the fuck? I came here to get out of my head and into my body, and still, I was stuck. Okay, so I was rolling over, felt some penises, okay. like At one point, my face was definitely between a woman's legs. There were boobs, there were butts, limbs just flowing around. We're all like moving, and I'm just like, Ugh. And so I don't know if 40 minutes passed or two hours. I don't really know. But eventually, it ended, and he said, okay, take your time. Come back into the space. And then eventually, I heard some conversation by the snack table, and I'm just laying there with my eyes closed, more in my body, but still in my head. And so I decide to get up, and there's oil everywhere, so I'm like trying to open my eyes. And there's a few remaining glistening bodies on the mat, and some of which I would have loved to engaged with had it been a sexual space. And then I'm like, wait, why wasn't this a sexual space? <laughs> You're telling me that a bunch of strangers are going to come reserve a seat, and it's not going to be sexual? And then I was like, okay, well, wait, maybe, all right, it's like dipping your toe rather than diving in. And would I have even come if it had been a sexual space? And now I was getting mad, and the whole thing started feeling phony, and I was just like, I'm done. So I stood up, I grabbed a strawberry, toweled off. Everyone's naked, just chatting, like it's fine, like normal. (laughs) And so I get dressed, and I leave, walk out into the night. And as I'm walking back to my bike, I'm really left with, why did I just do that? What did I get from that experience? And the truth is, the real profound moment happened before our clothes even came off. Because during the conversation about consent, we did this exercise in which you partnered up. And one person lays on the floor, and their partner provokes them, provokes them, what? (laughs) Provokes them. (laughs) into finding their boundaries. And the goal is to find your no. So you poke, you squeeze, you slap, you tickle, you itch, you massage, whatever it is. And the goal is not to hurt them or make them uncomfortable. It's to push them so that they react, so that they find their edge, so they know where it is. And so I partnered with a woman. She lays down, and I feel like a child. I'm like gently like stroking one finger on her leg and like pushing into her... I'm like, I don't know what to do. And she's clearly a pro because the scale is green, go, yellow, just be careful. Red is no, stop. And she's like, green. So I was probably very boring to her. And frankly, probably not doing my job. And so eventually we switch, but he doesn't want us to inverse. So we find a new partner. Now I lay down and the woman I'm with is, let's say, 54 years old. And she's a pro too because she skips all the stuff that I do immediately is going in deep and like doing stuff. And I'm like, all right. And she's not being aggressive. She's just being intentional. And I still feel like a kid because I'm laying there not knowing what we're going to discover here. And at one point, she grabs my neck, starts to squeeze. And I'm like, okay. And then she squeezes harder. and I'm like, I'll let you know. And she lets go. She looks at me. And she goes, Paul, I need you to find your no. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to let you kill me. (laughs) She goes, no, no, no. That is not the point. The point is not to see what you can tolerate. The point is to see what is enjoyable to you. I had never thought of that in my entire life. And I'm not talking sexually. Like, as a human being, I had never considered the fact that life is not meant to be endured. Life is meant to be enjoyed. We are allowed to do things that feel good, that give us pleasure and excitement and joy and playfulness and fun. And one could argue that's what we're meant to be doing because when you do what feels good, you come alive. And isn't that the point? And so we tried again. And as soon as she squeezed, I said, red. Now, I'd like to say that that changed my life immediately. (laughs) Obviously, it didn't help me that evening. But in reflection, I realized that boundaries are not only helpful, they're not only valuable, but they're necessary. Because when you have boundaries, it allows you to really sit into and enjoy and feel experiences that you have within them and I'd spent so much of my life just accepting what is muscling through making it work but I wasn't seeking out the things that made me happy and now two years later I've gotten better I don't just give my time away and I'm smart about how I use my energy so I have gotten better but here's the kicker Two years later, and I still have not been to a sex party. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Like, what is that thing keeping me from doing the thing that I know and have known for years that I want to do? That fear, that friction that I was trying to escape in a pile of oily bodies, that's not out there. That's in here. That decision and that doing, there's a fine line. And it's just an invisible wall. It's just a boundary of our own creation. And while boundaries can be helpful in teaching us how and when to say no, I'm really hoping that it's time to finally fucking say yes. Thank you.
0: This has been an emotional day for all of us. I think we should get naked. What? Hey, everyone, look at me! I'm naked! Come on, everyone get naked! Whee!
2: Whee! Okay, now usually when we do this, you end up covered in oil. Now rub it in. With my hand? No. With your nut sack. Caress it.
1: Rub it. Feels good, doesn't it? Words. So oily and
0: whatnot.
3: Slippery. So slippery.
1: You know, um, when I I was 25 years old, the very first time I went to New York City, and I never forget... (laughs) I went there on a Greyhound bus and I was just staring out the grimy Greyhound bus window, you know, as we're driving, just, you know, freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go to New York City. Like everything's going to change. I was so naive. I mean, it is a little late at 25 to have never gone to New York City, but I have to tell you, I fantasized it kind of my entire life. It started when I was 4 years old. I was obsessed with Sesame Street, but not with the monsters and or Transylvanian counting. I was obsessed with the apartments. I was like apartments. I cuz it did not look like the suburban neighborhood I lived in, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I didn't even know of anyone who lived in an apartment, but those, you know, I was like, this looks amazing. Everyone gets their own room. You have neighbors and friends everywhere. You know, you hang out on the stoop. You're minutes away from a soda shop, (laughs) uh, and there's a sarcastic garbage can. Like, it just seemed, (laughs) I really was like, where is that? I remember saying to my older brother, I said to him, I wish Sesame Street was real, And he was like, you know, that's New York City. And I was like, interesting. And then I also, this is like shameful. I only remembered it for this. I used to write little fiction stories when I was like 14 and 15 years old, mostly for myself, but with the intention that, you know, one day someone would read them and then they'd be like, this should be published. Never happened. (laughs) But I would write these little stories when I was 14 and 15. And the main character in the story was me as a woman living in New York City, I guess, whatever my perception of that was, in an apartment. My character was a starving artist (laughs) whose apartment was small, but, you know, was boho chic. Uh She had cleverly reconstructed milk crates into furniture. You know, she was crafty. (laughs) And her best friend was a street musician down the road who played saxophone. (laughs) that was and it was just the little adventures of me as that person my name was Missy and I would just write all these little stories about what Missy was up to cuz you know and it was just like wandering I would just like have these stories about just wandering through the streets and having friends who lived in apartments I had no intention of ever moving to New York because honestly it was a fantasy the images that I'd put together were from my brain Sesame Street the movie Annie, that was a huge part of it, Crocodile Dundee, I gotta say, that was a huge part of it, Uh, and Working Girl, so I cobbled all of that together, and that's how I saw New York City, but still, television, film, and my own brain, and I was like, I'll never go there, it's not for me, it seemed like it was for rich people, it seemed like it was for Americans, not for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it seemed like it was dangerous dangerous in a way that I romanticized. Like I was like, "I bet when you get mugged in New York City, like sparkles also fly in the air.") <laughs> So then, you know, I go to uh, college. I leave Calgary, Alberta, Canada to go to college in Montreal. Most of my friends kind of dispersed around the country. And I had one friend that went to NYU. And we were all obsessed with that. that we had a friend that went to New York. And I would call her up all the time. We, we uh, would talk all the time. And I'm asking her about, what is it like? What is it like? She just seemed changed immediately by the experience. She would talk to me on the phone about all these things I had no idea about. She was like, well, you know, I was shopping. I don't know, do you know the designer Patricia Field? And I'd be like, Yeah, yeah. I you know, I would just fake it all. She was like, Yeah, so we were shopping there before we saw the blue man group. You know, she was just like peppering all this stuff about her life and all the cultural and theatrical and fashion stuff that was around her in New York. And I felt like a country Bumpkin talking to her on the phone. I was obsessed with wanting her life seemed unattainable. That year, she said to me, "Ophira, why don't you just come to New York? Why don't you come to New York for New Year's Eve?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What?" And I, I was like, "I can't. I can't." I, and I said to her, "I have a hundred dollars. Like, if I traveled right now, I could only bring a hundred dollars." And she was like, "Well, how much is a bus ticket?" Uh, and I was like, I don't know. I can call up Greyhound. I can let you know. And she was like, listen, if you can get a bus ticket and bring your $100, just come down for New Year's Eve day, and then we'll spend New Year's Eve together and go back on New Year's Day, and you'll probably get a cheap ticket because nobody wants to do that. And I was like, okay, great. This is how I've lived my entire life. Whatever nobody wants to do, that's where I come in. <laughs> so uh, I call up Greyhound. Tickets uh, I were $36 seemed extraordinary. And so I packed my best clothes that I thought I had. I packed, you know, boots and a red shiny shirt that I thought was cool. New York cool, maybe. And uh, I went down and I got on this Greyhound bus, you know, and I just didn't know what to expect. But as we're on this bus and I'm looking around at the other people of course no one looked like they wanted to be there no one ever looks like they want to be on a Greyhound bus I was the one sort of idiot being like this is amazing and as we are coming into New York you know I think I'm expecting like we're coming into Disneyland or like we're coming into Las Vegas like I'm expecting this sort of grandeur to appear on the horizon but as we come in it is it is dreary. You know, it's, uh, it's just gray. Uh, I mean, it was December 31st, you know, and there was no snow on the ground. It was cold, but there was no snow. It was just this uh, like freezing rain. And I just saw this skyline of a lot of buildings and they were all just gray and brown and gray and brown. And as we're getting closer into Penn Station, uh, looking at the people, no one looked excited to live in this fantasy of mine. They're just running around annoyed. They look rushed and bitter. And if you know anything about New York, every port of entry is disappointing. (laughs) LaGuardia, (laughs) JFK, Port Authority. I mean, Grand Central, maybe. But Penn Station is the absolute worst. It is like being inside of a McDonald's that nobody has ever cleaned. <laughs> uh, and I get out of that bus and I'm walking through, you know, this a grimy windowless station full of dirty tiles outside. And there I am in New York City. And I think, oh, it's, it's gross. It's just <laughs> totally gross. I was wrong the in- i was just wrong with everything i make it to my friend's apartment i got to say her apartment is super small she has a very cool roommate who is a fashion designer to be, you know, she's studying fashion design, but she talks about herself. Like she's, she says to me immediately, I'm a fashion designer while well, I'm in school, but you always should talk about who you are in terms of who you're going to be. And I was like, oh, that is so New York. That is so New York. Uh, and they they actually have two windows that open up onto brick walls. <laughs> it's a tiny apartment. I didn't realize that my friend Diane, who I was visiting, was very stressed about this plan for our New Year's Eve. Something hadn't come together, and she was stressed, and she said she had to make a bunch of phone calls. And I kept saying to her, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry. I mean, like, I'll be happy anywhere. I'll be happy anywhere. We could just go anywhere. And she kept looking at me going, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. I was like, what do you mean? Let's just go anywhere. She's like, we can't just go anywhere. She's making phone calls, she's making phone calls, and then finally she's happy. And she has procured an invitation for us to go to a house party. You know, I didn't come to New York to go to a house party, but I was like, whatever, I did say I'd be happy anywhere. So I show her my clothes that we're gonna wear. I'm gonna wear for our New Year's Eve in New York, uh, and that she says no. And I remember she gave me this. Uh, it looked like a purple. It was a dress, but it just looked like a square piece of purple vinyl with a <laughs> um, head hole and armholes that reached. Uh, you know, just with just a little bit of the panty showing. I would say it was just that long ago. Just so you get a, so a hint of panty, I believe, uh, was the the length, and I had a pair. Of uh, she gave me a pair of heels and we were off. She, of course, looked fabulous and had like a faux mink coat. And we take a cab that she's in control, which is amazing. I felt like I was just watching the work of a master as she's navigating us. And we get to, um, we are in Midtown. And Midtown, as everyone knows, is basically blocked off in New York City on New Year's Eve for the infamous ball drop. And she says, "Okay, we're going to get out here and walk because the invitation for this house party that we are going to is in Midtown. It's all sort of lost to me, but I am following her and we can't get to Midtown because it is barricaded with police and barricades but we walk up to a pair of police guards they are guarding the barricades and they immediately you know start going like ladies ladies you can't come here but diane shows him this invitation printed out on full scap and he reads it and lets us through open sesame (laughs) I think this is quite fabulous police we've just had an interaction with police that's exciting and we walk further uh down sixth avenue and we end up in front of the place that this party is it's a condo it is a huge beautiful building newish for the neighborhood in the middle of basically times square new york And we walk in, and there is a doorman there. I've never seen a doorman. He greets us very formally. He gives us a glass of champagne, or maybe it was Prosecco, or maybe it was apple cider. I'm 25 years old. It doesn't matter. It's all amazing. And (laughs) I am just looking at this already. It just seems unreal. And I think to myself, because I don't know anything about the concept of a trust fund kid, I just didn't know about it. And I'm looking at this thinking, (gasps) If I work really hard, you know, maybe someday I can have this. (laughs) The apartment party is on the very top floor. So we ride the elevator up to the penthouse and the doors open. It is some 25-year-old's apartment, clearly a trust fund kid. They didn't work hard. Their great, great grandfather worked hard and maybe the whole line down. But there they have this amazing apartment. It's all white. I remember turning to my friend going, it's like the kind of place Celine Dion would live. (laughs) And it's filled with other 25 year olds who are dressed pretty cool, but they make me feel like I fit in and someone hands me a drink and I'm a little afraid to talk to them because I think they're all probably better than I am, but people are very welcoming and they're nice. And I'm starting to feel like it's something, like I'm part of something. And it's fun. It's getting close to midnight and the person that's running the party says, everyone out into the terrace. There's a terrace. So, we all go out onto this terrace. And you know, it's the top of this building in the middle of Times Square. So, we are within eyeshot of of the ball that is about to fall and down below us are the throngs of people. And the countdown 10, 9. I mean, I can't believe it. We're counting down as we're hearing people below us, thousands of people count with us. And we get to one and the ball drops and everyone cheers. Uh, It just feels like loud is coming all around me and within me. And some guy that looks like Benicio Del Toro grabs me and kisses me. You know, when it was the 90s, Maybe it was Benicio Del Toro, <laughs> but he just kisses me and then he looks at me and he dashes off and I think, oh, that is so New York, just to make a loving connection and then be off to the next thing, you know? And everyone on the on the terrace starts chanting, we're in the center of the world, we're in the center of the world and I'm cheering with them and the confetti is flying in the air and because it's so cold, it looks like... Like sparkles. And I think to myself, this is it. This is the fantasy that I've been leading up to my entire life. And you know what? It's a sign. And I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to move to New York. And this is what New Year's Eve is going to be like for me every single <laughs> year. Oh. <laughs> I will tell you, I've been living in New York for 20 years, chasing the dragon. It's never happened. (laughs) I've basically never been able to crack New Year's Eve. I've done it all. I I think last year I watched the ball drop on television, which seemed a special kind of unimpressive when you know it's a mile away in real life. But I don't know what New Year's Eve is going to be like coming up, but my fantasy now My fantasy now is that I'll be in New York for New Year's Eve and I'll go to a subpar bar that's a little too crowded and I'll pay 14 bucks for their Bud Light or whatever. And I'll have a couple friends with me there. And at midnight, I'm going to hug a stranger. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Fabulous.
2: Yay!
0: Ophira Eisenberg. Oh my God. Don't
4: worry, I won't hurt you, I only want
3: you to have some fun.
0: This is Risk. This is Prince behind me now. Of the songs that bring New Year's Eve to mind, you're not going to do better than that one. Uh, before Prince, <laughs> we heard from Ofira Eisenberg, who you can find on Twitter, at Ophira E. And before Ofira, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from someone who we love so much. He is a staple of the New York City storytelling scene. He told me that he discovered Risk in the very first week of its existence back in 2009. He was in rabbinical school at the time and had to download the episode's in roundabout ways, because the Wi-Fi at school was pretty restricted. And we've been meaning to get him on the show for years. You can find Ellie Rider at his website, ellieriter.com. That is E-L-I-R-E-I-T-E-R dot com. Ellie told his story at one of the Risk livestream shows recently, so here he is now with a story we call Found in Translation.
4: So It was my first day of college class and I got in front of the group and I told the class what I wanted to study and how I was looking for a partner. and There was complete silence and cold stares. Some things didn't change. See, I was a late bloomer. After dropping out of rabbinical seminary, I got into college at 22 and really that was the first time in my life that I was in an environment where there were people who didn't look like me there were people who didn't sound like me. I came from a school where like, it was all boys, we wore white shirts, we wore black dress pants. And I got to Hunter College, 25,000 students from every socioeconomic class and background. And I'd be walking in the halls and I'd be completely confused. And like, even to fit in, I bought my first pair of blue jeans, or as my 10th grade Rebbe called them, the pants of the Gentiles. I remember when I told a teacher of mine that I was going to Hunter, his first reaction was, isn't that a women's school? <laughs> and I'm like, "That it was in like the 70s, like the 1870s.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I got there and I sort of couldn't find my place because I was still very religious and observant. And I was in this very secular environment. Like one professor of mine got arrested for protesting. Another ar- a person was part of the Weather Underground Terrorism Group and like I, w- I would go to the Jewish club or as my old teachers would call them Christians <laughs> and like for them they'd be like being Jewish is watching Fiddle Around the Roof and for, for me being Jewish is being Fiddle Around the Roof <laughs> so I'd be wandering the halls and like in my women's jeans because I bought jeans without knowing they were women's jeans <laughs> And I got to this linguistics class. I wanted to do original research on Orthodox Jewish English. And if you don't think that exists, if you're ever in New York, go to B&H. <laughs> and I told the class what I wanted to study. And then after class, this other young man approached me, who also had a beard. And he told me that like, he wanted to study with me. And I'm like, w- why? And he's like, because I, l- I like Semitic languages. And I'm like, why? Because like it's not like... No one studies Semitic languages to get women, you know? Like, it's not like engineering. So he told me his name was Abdal. He was Palestinian. I'm not. But I figured, why not? I needed someone to work with. And after class, we would hang out in the lunchroom. And we'd both be looking around at the people eating. And he wouldn't eat anything because nothing was Halal. And I wouldn't eat anything because nothing was kosher. (laughs) And we'd both be hungry. And, like, we got to know each other better a little bit through our hunger. Because, like, we talk about dating, for instance, where he'd talk about how hard it was to find someone who was similarly devout as he was. And I would talk about how it's hard to find someone similarly devout, but also more politically progressive. Um, And also, like, I was jealous of him because first he wore skinny jeans so well that were for men. He wore his skinny jeans, he had these really amazing white vans or something like that. He just looked put together. But also, like, for him, he was very observant, but also he didn't seem anxious. And I'm halfway there, but the wrong half. So, throughout the semester, we're hanging out, and he's, he told me a story about how he was in Israel-Palestine the previous summer for a month, and after the first week, he realized that no one around there in his group was as like, devout as he was, so he locked himself in the study hall for the rest of the trip and studied by himself. And I'm like, that's exactly how I feel when I visit the Upper West Side. <laughs> <laughs> or when I go on birthright trips. So we're working out, and we're, we're, start, we're like doing research together, and one evening we meet in a Starbucks. And we're going over the data I collected. So I teach in different, like, all-boys yeshivas privately. And I gave my students polls to fill out. Surveys. And we're going over the survey data of of about 75 or 80 students. And it's just a shit show. Where, like, some of the kids just wrote smart-ass answers. Some of the kids left things blank. And then it was also really embarrassing because I was an English teacher and my ninth graders couldn't spell for shit. They can spell shit, now. Like, they kept spelling the words phonetically, but they couldn't spell the word phonetically. Like, for instance, one student spelled people P-E-P-E-L. So this whole time, over the previous few months, I've been really avoiding this elephant in the room with hundreds of years of history because, like, Abdel seemed like a very nice person. I don't like saying something inappropriate, and, like, I didn't feel equipped to deal with that. And we're going over the data, looking at all my students. And he looked at me with a glint in his eye. And he's like, you know, I always thought you guys would win. Now I'm not so concerned. And I realized that he's someone who can joke about this very complicated situation. And we'd be good friends and we, could, our friendship could survive this much. So after working together for a while, we submit our research to an undergraduate research conference. And I'm very excited because like, I finally have a reason to try on the half a dozen blazers I own. <laughs> I can finally put them to good use. Even though I was an undergrad, I still dressed like some wizened old professor from Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> we got there, and I'm looking at the roster, the who's, who's presenting that day. We have cancer research, HIV research, research to prevent infant death, yeshivish. Cancer research, cancer research, cancer research. And although there was a contest for a breast presentation, I saw we would lose regardless because like, everyone was doing such serious stuff and that we were not doing that such serious stuff. The conference started and I hid myself in the bathroom. I was re- very nervous. And Abdel texted me to get my tuchus over there right now. Although he didn't use the word tuchus yet. He didn't know the word yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get back and I'm wearing a blazer because... And we start talking about our research. And after we speak for a few minutes, the academics in the room, who are very scary, ask questions. We answer them. And there's a very lively back and forth. We finish, and I, I meet his mom. She's an amazing woman. And we say our goodbyes. And his mom invites me over to dinner. So I left hungry but also excited to try his mom's cooking. And the next day, about 5 p.m., I get a text from Abdel saying, We won the conference. We did serious work and I can finally own those blazers and buy more, fuck yeah. (laughs) The semester goes on and we present again and do more research and we're friends throughout the semester. Like we hang out, we get coffee, I see his family again. And then the semester ends and he's going to Israel and Palestine to teach again. And he flies out June 10th or so. On June 11th, three Israeli boys go missing and war breaks out. They find the boys who are killed and then there's a lot of combat, both in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And I'm looking at social media and all my friends, my Facebook friends, not my real friends, really come out of the closet as like, you know, like assholes.
1: <laughs>
4: and I read the news and like, my first fear is that Abdel is dead. There are a lot of casualties. There's a lot of, like, issues happening. My second fear is that, like, he might not want to talk to me. Mm. I, don't know, I don't know how he's feeling these days. I don't know how anxious he's feeling. I send him an email to see how he's doing. And I send him a second email after not hearing from him for a week. He emails me back a week later being like, Hey, Ellie, Shalom. Which it's a good sign because he's learning. <laughs> he's like, Hey, Ellie. I'm thinking about you and your family right now because he knew I have a lot of relatives in the region. He's like, I'm praying that your your family and friends stay safe. He told me that luckily he was safe and he just wants the fighting to end. But he just, his main concern is me and my family. That could have gone a trillion different ways, but his main concern was me. And it was a very close, touching moment. The next day, there was a Jewish fast. And also the same day was also a Muslim fast. It was commemorating the destruction of the Jewish temple. And it was getting dark that night, and the fast ends in the evening. And I ended up buying it from a cafe, mint tea. And I was sitting on a subway platform with a mint tea, smelling very aromatic. And it, like, I was very thirsty from a long day of, of fasting. And I just wanted to have some. But it was too early. It was, like, one of these dusk moments when, like, I was trying to do the mental math in my head whether or not it was worth it to sit to end the fast a little early. And I'm sitting on the platform and the tea is melting in my fingers. And I'm like trying to like balance that. And then a question pops into my head. What would Abdel do? And I knew the answer. So I waited.
0: all for this week's episode folks this is Saint Xavier and Willie Mason behind me now and we just heard from Ellie Ryder who you can find at his website at Ellie that's e-l-i-r-e-i-t-e-r we had a spectacular risk live stream this past weekend and we're gonna have another one on October 9th at 10 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to get on over to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets. You really don't want to miss these live streams. They really are a very special sort of occasion. We're making lots of beautiful memories out of these nights that we spend with one another online i was talking about comments before uh comments specifically i was talking before about over at the risk podcast fans discussion group on facebook but did you know that one of the very best things you can do for us here at risk is to go on over to apple podcasts where they list podcasts in the itunes realm And leave a five-star review for us there on iTunes in Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review. The more of those that are there, uh, the more people end up finding out about risk. So really do us a favor and go on over there if you never have and leave us a a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. There are so many educational opportunities at thestorystudio.org. There are all kinds of one-hour masterclasses or two-day workshops or... The video workshops that you can download and and watch in your own time. There's lots of different possibilities and workshops based around different themes like storytelling for performance or storytelling for personal growth or storytelling for business. And if you've ever taken one of our workshops with one of our faculty members, you're going to want to take another with another. We have a fantastic Faculty, and it's great to get different points of views. So come on over and visit us at thestorystudio.org to find, you know, good possibilities for yourself. There's also so much going on at Patreon lately. I put up a giant check in last week. This week, we're putting up a giant story by Don Collymore. We've been putting up these compilations of your anecdotes. So Make sure to get on over to patreon.com slash risk and become a member because it really is essential for keeping risk running. Or you can make a one-time donation to risk at paypal.me slash risk show. And then don't forget you can hire me personally to make a personalized video for you. At slash the Kevin Allison, or you can hire me to be your storytelling coach at kevinallison.com. And for everything else you might be interested in about us, be sure to check out our website at risk show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>